Good afternoon, everyone. This is uh, Zach Lucas, McCarthy, Denning. Um, just bringing us into this webinar, the regional talk Malaysia, Thailand. Um, just before we get started, I'll do the, uh, the usual sort of housekeeping. Obviously, this is uh, second to last in the series of governance and succession talks that we've been doing since late August. Uh, Malaysia, Thailand today, and then uh, tomorrow we will have the single family office governance and succession um, sort of finale for the entire series. Coming back to today's session, just introduce the, the panelists. As usual, we've been joined by Spencer Su from the Deputy Director of Monetary Authority of Singapore, uh, Jennifer Sipat from uh, One Law Office in Bangkok, Thailand, and Gil Kayam from a partner, Shira de Lamour and Co in uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. So these are the, the panelists that are joining me today to, to run through the uh, uh, Malaysia, Thailand, uh, sort of business family governance and succession uh, program. In terms of the agenda, uh, we'll look at, as we have in the previous series, uh, the business family demographics for each of the, the subject countries today. Um, we'll look at the typical succession planning um, that the families undertake uh, in the, the relevant markets. And then we'll look at the governance planning or the governance frameworks that are typical of that market. We'll then look at whether or not and to what extent international financial centers like Singapore, Hong Kong and elsewhere can be involved in the governance planning process or the succession planning process with the business families in terms of international structuring, whether through a corporate or uh, through a trust um, structure. We'll then transition and look at the domestic family office environment within, let's say, Bangkok or KL, and we'll see whether or not there is demand for family office services. If there is, is this a, a strong demand or is it just nascent and emerging? And then finally, we'll look at the demand within the markets for international family offices. And here we'll, we'll specifically be discussing the single family office in Singapore and the initiatives that have been surrounding that. So that's today's program. Uh, in terms of the family demographics, I would ask uh, the following questions for each of the, um, the, the, the panelists. Which is the generation that is typically in control now of the family businesses? Obviously, it's a generalization, but typically, who's in control? The average number of family members that we anticipate will succeed to the business of so how big of a governance challenge do the families have? And how soon do we anticipate this transition of wealth uh, going forward? So I'd invite uh, Kim to, to, to lead us off with which generation is typically in control of the family business from a Malaysia perspective? Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Um, in Malaysia, we typically see that the generation in control would either be the first or the second. Uh, more often than not, it's the first, and uh, they're, they're starting to think of um, passing on to the next generation. And the average number of members that will succeed, so how big are the families, the business families typically in Malaysia, in terms of the um, generation? It ranges in size. I mean, obviously, we have really huge conglomerates, uh, you know, to top of my head. Um, we can name some of the big families that frequently feature in, in you know, the top 50 richest um, 
families in Asia, you, you have the Genting group, um, you have the IOI group. So th those are, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, really large sums of um, money in those families. And uh, probably more under the radar, you have the um, smaller family businesses, not, not the headliners, but even then we're still talking about substantial sums of money. So depending on the, you know, the, the situation in each family, and obviously to advice as well, it, it probably works better if you just have one successor. Um, but sometimes, of course, because the family itself is in various, uh, you know, involved in various divisions or, or industries, they could also determine within the family that, you know, um, child number one will run the um, property sector, child number two might run the plantation sector. Mm. So, so that could happen too. But um, oftentimes, it's just one single successor. Um, mm. So in terms of the, the sort of family sizes, we, we saw in one of the previous regional talks that uh, in terms of Japan, the Japanese business families, um, generally the families have no more than two children. And so what they see um, in terms of generational transfer is the succeeding generations that actually get involved in the, in the business. It's no more than the ones that they're replacing in many cases. So we don't see this proliferation of, of let's say, second gen, and then it moves to the, the cousin generation, and then it gets more and more. Because this is the inherent complexity of family businesses, is that there's going to be a greater amount of individuals to coordinate going forward. But from what you're saying, from a Malaysia standpoint, are the families um, particularly large as, or they're very nuclear in terms of the size of the family themselves? Well, they're definitely, from you know, the ones that, that we've dealt with, um, they're definitely not in terms of two, like Japan. Yeah. It's frequently, you know, possibly four or more. And I think as well, um, if, if you're talking about um, Asian families, Chinese families, Malay families, they, they tend to, to like the idea of, of having more, um, you know, more children, more, more, more issue. Yes. Right. So they're, 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 it's, it's oftentimes encouraged. Yes. yes. So um, two is very unusual. It'll, it'll, it'll usually be much, a much larger family. Right. And, you know, there's generally a lot of, um, certainly in the, the sort of um, private wealth press, for want of a better word, there's a lot of discussion around the great transition of wealth that's about to unfold in, in Asia uh, due to the retirement of first generations. Uh, in practice, though, do we, do we see this generational transfer happening within the next three, five or ten years? Is it immediate? Or do you feel it's where are we in terms of the timing? Because certainly, from a sort of popular press perspective, they think it's about to occur tomorrow. I don't think it's that immediate. I think mm. it's more likely to be, you know, five years. Um, I think you you can see that they they they've got the idea now that they need to prepare and plan for the future. But it'll still take time, and it it still takes time, I think, to let go. So, you know, I, I don't see it happening, you know, so immediately and, and tomorrow, it, it's yeah. probably too soon. 
but you see a mix of first and second generation businesses. That's basically the mix that, that's currently going on in Malaysia, yeah. first and, and second. But you, it's hardly ever that we see third generation businesses. That, that's about right, isn't it? Yes, yes. Right, hardly ever. Okay. Okay, Jennifer, from your perspective, when you look at the Thai business families, and obviously you're, you're very much involved in them, uh, particularly in Bangkok, which generation is typically in control of these businesses? Are we seeing second generation, third generation, or what's generally the feel when it comes from a Thai perspective? Uh, from the uh, Thai family business perspective, the uh, generation that control the business, uh, most of them uh, are the uh, uh, second generation or third generation because the background of the family business in Thailand, uh, many, many family business in Thailand over 100 years and uh, they, they are the centennial uh, family business. And then uh, the rest are the uh, half of the, the century. Then uh, the third generation now take control the, the business. And uh, in, 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 in some, in some uh, new family business uh, just start and then uh, first generation control mm -hmm. the business. But, but you see, uh, uh, uncertain for the first genera uh, generation to, to uh, 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 prepare the succession plan to the mm. next generation uh, because uh, the the aging of the family business are uh, still short. Right, right. And, and the size of a, a typical Thai um, sort of family or business family, when we're looking at second generation transferring to third and third to fourth generation, what sort of numbers are we talking about in terms of the amount of family members involved? Is it you know, sort of 20, 30, or is it higher than that? Oh, uh, over 50, and uh, some some family members are over 100 family right. members. But, but the active family members that involved in the business are uh, not, not much. Uh, maybe right. half of them, uh, it, it depends on the expertise and the, the passion in right. the of the family. Right, and in terms of this transition, third to fourth and fourth onwards, is this again coming back to what I said to, to Kim about the popular perception that uh, Asia is just in, on the cusp of a huge generational transfer? Is it true to say that it's within three years, within five or ten? What do you see as the, the sort of typical time period before this transition actually begins to get going? Uh, in terms of the, uh, from my experience, I I, I can uh, see that uh, 10 years in the average, for example, the uh, central group, uh, uh, the aging of the family business around uh, 70, 80 years, and then the, the succession plan to, to prepare the successor around 10 years. About but, 10 years. Yes, right. around 10 years. Uh, it depends on the education, not, 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 not the in-system not the system, uh, systematic education, right. but the, the education in terms of the family business succession plan. Because uh, in Thailand, we, we just start around 10 years, 15 years back. Right, right, okay, okay. Moving on just to the, 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 the actual succession planning that the families undertake. These are the, the questions that I would posit. What sort of, just to start off the discussion, What's the typical um, platform that the families adopt in terms of their operating businesses? Is it corporate, partnership, or other forms? 
do the families typically transfer the business only when they pass away or do they effectively do what's called accelerated inheritance and, and gift over the shares to the next generation during their lifetime? And do families ever structure the succession? Uh, do they use trusts or any other forms of arrangement? We can, we can discuss the, uh, the progress of the, the trust legislation in, in Thailand. Uh, do families transfer the business to the next generation equally? Or do they, um, do they transfer unequally, let's say preferring an older son or only preferring members that have a, a demonstrated competency? How, how do we generally transfer the businesses? And then are there any community property or forced air callback concerns um, that would, uh, that would um, interrupt the succession process for the family? So Kim, again, if I invite you to kick us off, just looking at the typical Malaysian family business, um, what form do they typically adopt? Is it partnership-based or is it corporate-based? It's, it's corporate-based. Um, I think that's, that's the vehicle and entity that, that's the most used for most family businesses. And uh, that's, that's how they would have the um, succession planning. You start with the, corp with the company and then it, it moves on from there in terms of uh, how you go about uh, with the planning. Right. And, and in terms of the, the shareholders, um, do they do they basically dispose of their shares through their wills or or more more radically through an intestacy, or do they actually try and do it during their lifetime? When, what's the general feel of how families transition the wealth? Is it lifetime or is it only when they pass away? I think it depends on um, you know how perhaps old-fashioned the patriarch is. Those who are slightly more old-fashioned, they they might. Um, be very concerned about passing over the reins of the business too soon. Mm. So I think they, they do start by bringing in members of the family into the business mm. and to see how they perform. And then, you know, they, they'll start perhaps um, giving the um, family members more responsibility. Mm. So oftentimes they, they may agree beforehand and they may start transitioning but it could very well be that it's it's only upon the death that it, it actually crystallizes. Yeah. So that, that's one form of doing it. Mm. And the um, perhaps um, the more modern families, especially if they've been taking advice, may then also consider transitioning during the lifetime. So you may have um, trust set up during the lifetime mm. of the um, patriarch or, or foundation. Mm. So that these these things are, are in place, right? Do they do, do the families utilize some of the advanced trust legislation in Lab One to achieve this, or the, the foundation legislation in Lab One? Do they do they tend to do that, or do they do they look at the um, sort of peninsula laws? They, I think it, it depends. Um, definitely, the legislation in Lab One is a plus because you know, um, as you may know, Zach the trust in Labuan can be perpetual, which yes. you can't have if you, if you have a trust under peninsular rules because we follow the um, British UK trust position, common law position. Yes. So you can't have a perpetual trust. And uh, we find as well that um, Labuan foundations are becoming more popular, probably because you can have a little bit more control compared to a trust. 
because as you know, a trust, once you set it up as a settlor, you, you basically divested yourself mm. of, of uh, any interest, un, you know, unless you name yourself as a beneficiary, any interest in, in those assets that you put into the trust, whereas mm. if you do it via La Bonne Foundation, then of course, um, you're able to reserve certain rights, some rights to yourself. Mm. How, how, much, how many of the families actually do this though? Is it basically only the very well-advised families who can afford to get good advice or, or is it generally known that families could look at trust solutions for this? How, how popular is this to do a, a trust solution for a business family? I think it's getting more popular. Uh, certainly it's, it's getting more known and I, you know, it, it helps that their advisors, whether in terms of their, their bankers or, mm. or even, you know, the, the, the lawyer who advises the, the company and, and, and the family in their family matters. You know, if it's, um, if it's introduced to the family members and if they know more about uh, what, um, what options there are available to them, I think they, they start becoming more receptive. And right. that is possibly also true if the second generation is, is sort of already having a role to play in the business. So they might also advise um, the father or the mother that, you know, we, we sh being, being sort of uh, more up to date and more um, knowledgeable about, um, you know, how other families have been doing it in the rest of the world. So they, they could also start uh, right. talking to, um, you know, the patriarch or the matriarch and, and planting the seed and, um, and uh, getting them to consider uh, this sort of options. Yes. And then in terms of, where they don't do a trust arrangement and they, they transfer it through their estates or, 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 or lifetime transfers. Is it equal inheritance across the board, no matter if the, the children are involved or not involved in the business, or is it preferring the son only, or what, what does it generally look like in terms of how- It, it very much depends made? on, yeah, it very much depends on, on the family. I mean, we've seen certain families, as you say, prefer, uh, the son more than the daughters. So mm. the, the sons uh, could be the ones that inherit the shares mm. that goes towards um, running the business, while the daughters may well be compensated in other ways, you know, with property or with, with cash rather than with share. And I think they, they do realize that it, it becomes quite difficult if you if you divide it equally, because it, it, it sort of waters down the control in mm. terms of the shareholding. Yeah. So if you have an anointed successor, for example, it could very well be that the anointed successor gets uh, you know, the bulk of the shares right. and the others um, will be compensated in other ways. That's very interesting because that's quite a US approach to things, isn't it? I think you have an American approach to this. So in terms of community property and force there, that's not really a consideration in, in terms of uh, Malaysia as a common law jurisdiction. Is that that right to say? Well, in, in terms of force air, I mean, if, if you're talking about non-Islamic, mm, um, yes, sorry, you know, persons, then definitely it's not a concern. Right. I think community property only comes in if, if, for example, you have um, certain children who are overseas, where you know community property could be an issue if there's a divorce. Yes, and and yeah, and but of course Malaysia in a limited way under our you know um, act as well our mm. law reform uh, family and marriage act there is also concerns that 
the court will take into account property that was uh, accumulated during the marriage. Mm -hmm. okay. Jennifer, from your side, um, if you're looking at a typical uh, family in Thailand, are they operating through corporate structures or is it uh, more of a partnership structure? How, how do they generally operate their businesses? Uh, in, in Thailand, uh, the most of the family business uh, adopt the uh, family holding company. Uh, right. The, uh, it, it is a corporation, not a trust, because uh, Thailand, we adopt the civil law system country. Mm. And uh, uh, we have uh, no family trust, where we have no uh, private trust, unless we have a real estate investment trust in the, in the stock market. Mm. Uh, uh, but the draft law of the private trust is still in the process. And then uh, hopefully in a few years next, uh, we will have the uh, family trust in Thailand. Uh, and, and, right. and now most of the uh, a billion, uh, trillion US dollar, uh, they, they uh, set up the trust in, in uh, Hong Kong, in uh, Singapore, uh, yes, yes. in uh, uh, Jersey and uh, Delaware uh, many years before. Right, right. And in terms of just coming back to the, the succession process itself, um, typically um, do families, if they don't structure abroad, and we'll get to the international structuring of some of, some of how this can be done, but in terms of domestically, do families tend to wait until they pass away to transfer ownership of the shares in the business, or do they gift the shares during their lifetime and, 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 and basically help the next generation to to work together by doing that. What, what typically happens? Uh, from, from my experience, uh, the will the drafting uh, uh, prepare for the, uh, the business transfer to the next succession, uh, next successor. And uh, some of them, uh, they, they transfer the business uh, after the death. And then uh, many, many court cases uh, among yeah. the family members, uh, they, they get fight in the court battle. Uh, because uh, no view uh, drafting clearly. Right, so, so they, they tend to do it through wills, but there's been a lot of bad experiences with families fighting after the, uh, the, 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 the relevant members passed away. That's been the experience. So that, has that meant that the families have then looked at maybe doing it during their lifetime rather than relying on, on doing it through testamentary processes? Uh, in in, in terms in terms of uh, the, the lifetime, uh, not, yeah. not 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 only the bill drafting. Uh, uh, from my experience, uh, some family business they prepare the successor, and the successor not only one not single successor, but uh, in the form of a committee. For example, three uh, yeah. three, three successor in separate business. For example, retail, office, uh, hotel, something like that. Right. And, and in terms of the community property and what's there, um, what's the position within a Thai context where uh, an individual passes over shares either during their lifetime or on their death with respect to community property and forced air rights? Uh, does that work? Does that, is that effective in Thailand? as a consideration, and if it is, what do the families do to manage that risk? Uh, yes, in, in, in Thailand, uh, we, uh, we, we found that the, the spouse uh, can live together without the marriage registration, mm. and uh, if the marriage registration uh, adopt, uh, the spouse can 
do the prenuptial contract. Right. And prenuptial contract can be used when, when the spouse divorce. Right. And in addition to the uh, prenuptial contract, the uh, uh, will drafting and the shareholders agreement among the group of the, uh, uh, the companies uh, adopt. Uh, this, right. is, this is to, to avoid any uh, takeover uh, opportunities, any uh, uh, risk of the share transfer to the uh, third party. Right, right. And in terms of forced air rights, do we, do we have that concept in Thai succession yes. or where members have automatic rights to the shares? That's right, that's right. If no bill, yes. if a prenuptial contract, the forced air right will be adopted in Thailand. Right, got it, okay. Just moving on to the governance aspects, because there's one aspect of obviously the way in which the families confer the, um, the, the ownership of the business across generations. But then there's a question surrounding how they prepare the next generation for working together in the business. And here questions I'll ask is do families create specific governance frameworks to help the next generation to, to, to work as a team? Uh, do families take into consideration best practice corporate governance codes, such as the requirement to have independent directors separation of chair and CEO, enhanced transparency and disclosure of information across the shareholder group, enhanced related pa uh, party transaction rules to help members to you know, uh, feel at ease that there is an abuse of the, of the, uh, the family business, uh, director remuneration and related disclosure rules, independent audit. These are just some, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are just some of the best practice corporate governance codes that, in, that would you know, sort of um, uh, sort of ask families to take into consideration that these are best principles when adopting a approach to the next generation working together. And then finally, if they do adopt best practice corporate governance codes, where do they typically put these codes or where do they typically put the provisions? Is it in a shareholder agreement or is it embedded in the company constitution or do they put it into trust deeds? So again, Kim, if I could ask you to to give us a, just a general sort of a survey of how governance is dealt with within the families as they cross uh, prepare for the next generation to take the helm. Yeah, we certainly see that it, it's now become more popular to have some sort of um, family constitution. Uh, and uh, I think it, it, it serves as more as a guide to um, perhaps the family ethos um, setting up the expected uh, conduct behavior of family members, as well as um, stressing the importance of families. So quite often in, in this family constitution, it will um, encourage the different members to, to work together and obviously to also encourage them to um, have family time together. So, you know, it's now becoming very popular that, that within the constitution, you will have things like um, members of the family should meet, you know, two, three times a year. And uh, it, it sets out as well. Um, it helps to set out as well the expectations if any members of the family goes into the business. So that, you know, you it may say that you, you need a certain qualification before you can be considered for yeah. a particular post, right. uh, family, senior management, yeah. So right. you, you can't just expect, yeah. So 
I think that helps because then it, it makes it very clear what the position is so mm -hmm. that, you know, you, there, there are no accusations later that, you know, preference of one over another and, and, and that sort of thing. So, mm -hmm. so it, is, it is becoming uh, more popular. Uh, in terms of best practice corporate governance codes, I think the, especially if it's a private company and it's not a, a public listed company, then it, they may not be so concerned. So for example, even if you have a, you know, under your item of independent directors, separation of chair and CEO. So even if they do have a separation of the chair and CEO, uh, oftentimes the two of them will be related anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't go as far as it would in, in a usual company because yeah. uh, the, the thinking and the belief is that, you know, you're all members of the same family um, controlling this company. So you, know, you, you do not have to so strictly um, you know, enforce uh, the, the usual corporate governance codes that perhaps a, a non-family business company would, would strictly adhere to. Yeah, I mean, that's quite typical for a family not to sort of take advantage of the, the sort of chain of accountability and supervision that ordinary corporate law would, would provide. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just when when looking at not the, the current generation in control, but looking at perhaps helping the next generation, there's always an idea of trying to make them a little bit more professionalized. Yeah, so but that of course that, that's also limited by, you know, provisions of law. Now we have, uh, you know, we, we had a new Companies Act that came in in 2016, so that provides for, you know, certain minimum rules that, had, that have to be complied with. Right. You know, for example, disclosure of information. Yes. Um, and of course, uh, if you're uh, a share, if you're a director with an interest, you need to disclose it. You know, those are all. Yes. So if those are all provided uh, by by law, then obviously they have to comply. Right. Right. Uh, in terms of if they do adopt this, you're saying that mostly they will look at a family charter as the as the route to do this. I think the family charter is more as a as a guide, so that within the family they know what to expect. But um, that is not necessarily legally enforceable anyway. Right. So right. to ensure that it, it's something that uh, is legally enforceable, it, it's usually in the shareholders' agreement or the corporate right. constitution. So that makes it clear it's in the shareholders' agreement that yes. you know you, you've all signed up to it and, and it's enforceable uh, you know by law. Right, right. Okay. Jennifer, from your side, given the maturity of the business families in um, Thailand, have yeah. they have they looked very carefully at these uh, best corporate governance practices? It's it's separate from the family governance side of the family acting in unison and, and trying to keep together, but looking at the interface between the family and the actual operating business. Do the families tend to look at these particular corporate governance codes as a guide for the best practice that they should adopt? Or how, how do they generally do that in Thailand? Uh, in, in terms of uh, the fa family business governance, uh, I, 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 I can say that I go back to around 10 years before. Mm. Yeah, in Thailand, we uh, we launched the uh, uh, the knowledge uh, in terms of the family charter, the family charter or family constitution uh, uh, introduced by by the uh, university, not the state university, but the uh, private university. 
-hmm. and uh, run by the academic, run by the uh, lecturer uh, to, to, to uh, educate the family business community in Thailand to, to understand and uh, to, to know the family rule as a charter but not governance. The governance uh, or CG corporate governance uh, mm -hmm. is required in the uh, public, in the capital market, only for mm -hmm. a uh, public company. Mm -hmm. But in, some, in terms of the uh, family business as a private company, uh, they don't concern about the governance. They, they concern about how to uh, create or, or use any device to prevent or protect the family members from any conflict from inside. Uh -huh. then, then uh, they, they, they found that the family holding company, the family charter, the uh, family will charters agreement, they use many, many devices to prevent any conflict in the future. And right. then, and then uh, up to now, uh, the wording family business gov governance uh, as, as a, the umbrella of many devices for the family uh, business to use. And one of them, is to uh, uh, succeed the uh, business to the next generation without any conflict or reduce any risks of the conflict. Right, so they tend to do it through a charter approach. Is that, is that right? Uh, yes, the, 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 the charter, you know, in, in Thailand, uh, similar to Malaysia, I think, or the other countries, mm. the charter uh, of family constitution, not the law, no legal binding. And then it is a family rule uh, and a commit and engage only for the family member on the telemed basis, on the telemed basis. You okay. can copy or replicate this uh, family charter from this family to use with another family. No, you cannot do the Google search and okay. use the template. No, because of a different background, different right. uh, business model or the family business. Right, right. So I suppose that brings us on to, to direct questions on family constitutions and what you're saying is they're, they're uniquely popular in, in a Thai context. Yep. Um, the supplemental questions on them are what's the legal implications of a, a family charter and typically who are drafting these charters from, from your perspective? Is it lawyers, accountants, the, uh, the private bankers or is it the business school academics as you mentioned before? Okay, okay. Uh, from my experience, uh, uh, um, and until now, we provide the uh, service of the family charter crafting, creating, uh, processing uh, to set up the family charter until the family office. Because, because uh, the family charter, uh, like a guideline, not the contract, no legal binding, and how to create something non-legal binding to use uh, with enforcement. We will use the enforcement not by way of law, because there's no legal action, but we use the family charter as the family financial sanction. Ah, so, so, so you use yeah. family politics to... to that's to right, that's right. Okay, that's, well, that's, that's another alternative dispute resolution mechanism, I suppose. Right, the family sanction uh, passed through the uh, family welfare, uh, financial support among the family members. If yeah. you reach out the family rule or family charter, you will be, you will be uh, uh, prohibited to up obtain the family welfare, something like that. Right. Well, I suppose in a, in a Thai context, that's a, a total disaster for that particular member if they're sort of excommunicated in that way from the family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, right. 
you know, Kim, from your side, looking at these, um, the popularity of constitutions for business families, a lot of it's led from the business schools promoting this quite heavily. And obviously from the children returning back from overseas who, who attended some of these business schools and they, they're become accustomed to this language. Um, what, what do you see are the, the sort of legal implications where families perhaps don't take professional advice and, and start to use family charters in a almost a shareholder-like way? What do, what do you see as the, uh, the risks in using family charters without any sort of professional advice? Well, I mean, the, the first thing, of course, to point out is what uh, Chinapat said, that uh, it, it's not a legally binding document. Because it just sets out, um, you know, the, the like, like I said, a code of conduct, uh, what is expected of the family, and and it's just it's just uh, an internal document for the family. Mm. So it doesn't it doesn't have any um, legal force. It's not a legal document. Mm. So I, I think people do. I mean, you know, the, the the families that do use it, they do realize that it's it's not legally enforceable. So they do use it for you know the specific purpose of just um, um, keeping the family together in terms of um, conduct, in terms of how they foresee the business going forward, how they foresee providing for each other, um, you know the, the the grandchildren perhaps education etc. So they do see it you know in that way. I, I've not seen it. Um, used or, or intended to be used in a legal way. So, so, and uh, one yeah. case might be relevant is uh, where we look at family family-owned companies. They, they, the sort of UK side of this has developed a stream of cases where they view these companies as a sort of quasi-partnership because mm -hmm. of the close relation between the the shareholders. So they they almost start to engraft a, a sort of fiduciary obligation between the shareholders which is not really a concept that's um, generally adhered to in common law yeah. company law and in that sometimes they will look at what was the agreement between you all um, not sitting on your straight your strict corporate law um, principles but looking at wider picture of what was agreed between the members on this sort of quasi partnership basis and the risk that is always um, sort of highlighted is if you've got a very detailed family constitution, that may actually be something that a judgment might want to look at. Because you might say that that's manifesting what it was that you had an agreement on. You know, all members, no matter what your percentage shareholding, should be a director. You can't be excluded from the directorship. You should you know, be entitled to information of a certain amount. And so it's always, a, in a common law system, there's always a little bit of a, a worry that uh, these constitutions sometimes stray into shareholder territory in terms of shareholder agreement territory and may have an unintended consequence if the shareholders fall out and it becomes a full-blown minority sort of oppression prejudice claim being made in the courts to try and sort out their differences. I mean, so in that context, I suppose from a Malaysian um, perspective, there's not been that drive of jurisprudence coming through of families falling out and and you know these sorts of documents being looked at as yet because it's fairly fairly new is that probably right yeah i mean of course we do have um, families falling out and and um you know litigation going on with with all sorts of dirty linen being washed in public 
Um, but it hasn't got to, because family charters and constitution are still a fairly new thing. Yes. So it, it's, I think we're, we're still a few years behind the UK right. in terms of the jurisprudence on that. Um, so, you know, I don't think it, 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 it has been um, quite an issue yet. Right, right, okay. All right, in terms of the international side, looking at international structuring, really the, the, the question being asked here is, is it possible to structure succession to the family business using an offshore entity or arrangement? And, and if so, what are the main considerations? So from, for the folks that are, you know, sat in the international financial centers from the trust companies, let's say, um, what can they do from, let's say, Singapore or Hong Kong or elsewhere to help with the succession process domestically. Um, obviously, in, in Malaysia, you've got Lab One, and that's, that's sometimes seen as a, a sort of offshore jurisdiction within the, the Malaysian Federation. But what, what can be done within the market um, to help families if they want to have an international element to their business succession planning? I think, Jennifer, I'd ask you to just lead us off with um, how much can we structure externally when it comes to a domestic Thai business? Uh, in, in terms of the, uh, the structure succession, uh, yeah. uh, in the, the of internet, international structuring? Yes. Uh, yes, as you mentioned, uh, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, uh, they are the, the very popular. And an another part of the uh, structuring internationally uh, is the, uh, in terms of the US citizen uh, they adopt uh, Delaware, uh, yeah. and uh, yes, uh, because the offshore family holding company will be used to connect with the family trust offshore. Right. right. Uh, and then to take a control, uh, the family business in Thailand. But you see, in Thailand, uh, we have the foreign remit. Right. Forty-nine percent of the shares will can can be owned by the offshore family holding and offshore trust. Right. Uh, not over 49% in terms of the land court and the uh, in terms of the uh, foreign business uh, operation for, and, and not allow not allow right. the, the uh, offshore entity to, to own more shares. Right. Is it, is it possible to confer more than 49% voting rights over the business but keep the economic at the, the you know, about, people are bound to think of a ways around these these foreign ownership restrictions, but in insofar as the legal approach is concerned, can you have more effective voting control and still stay within the rules? Is that is that possible, or how do they do right, this? Right. Good, good, good point, Zach. Good point. Because uh, uh, under Thai uh, land law and Thai corporate uh, mm. law, we we uh, rely on the only percentage. Only percentage, no, no requirement on the control power, economic power, or directorship. Right. You just focus on the uh, on the forty nine percent. That's it. Right. right. But if such the forty nine percent owned by foreign entity mm. uh, uh, are the uh, preference shares, mm. with the special ward, mm. still be a Thai company. <laughs> Right, got it. And uh, you need to understand the substance over form, just the right. uh, 49%, that's it. Right, right. And, and presumably, the, the shareholder arrangements that can be entered into would not, as long as you have the, the, the 49% being adhered to, the contractual relationships between the various shareholders 
would not be something that would be subject to overview within the, the relevant um, foreign ownership restrictions. Is that right? Uh, still okay. Yeah. Uh, you and care shall commit under the uh, special shelters agreement uh, or, or joint venture agreement or shelters agreement, something like that. Uh, yeah. To be okay, the law will will not get into to to attack. Right. Right. Okay. And and Kim, from your perspective, presumably with with, um, with Malaysia, it's it's, uh, it's perfectly acceptable to have foreign structuring of domestic businesses. Is that correct? On, on the whole, it is, it is acceptable, it is possible, but there are, cert, I mean, we, we did away with our foreign investment committee requiring approval for foreign ownership mm. uh, some years ago. Um, but there are still certain um, sectors and certain licenses that have been given to companies which may have some conditions to them right. and which may in some way limit uh, foreign ownership. Right. So uh, that is that is one consideration that has to be taken uh, account of. But um, you know, other than those specific conditions uh, attached to licenses, yes, it is perfectly possible to structure um, you know succession to a family business using offshore um, trust arrangements. That's that's very popular. The jurisdictions you've mentioned are also very popular. Right. And the, the main considerations. Um, as always, would be tax. Yes. Perhaps not so much from the Malaysian angle, um, because we don't have um, cop, uh, cop against tax anyway, or company against tax, capital gains tax. So mm -hmm. it, it's more um, uh, an issue of the uh, prospective beneficiaries. So if they live in countries that, you know, will have um, implications from a tax point of view that is detrimental to them if they inherit it uh, directly, yes. then it will help to, um, you know, go through certain uh, planning arrangements. And I think the other one as well is that um, sometimes the, the feeling amongst the um, family members, shareholders, is that perhaps you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket, yes. or if they're a bit concerned about uh, political upheaval, Yes. So maybe it's better to have, you know, certain, some things offshore. Right, right. So those are the sort of main considerations. Yeah. Okay. So just the, the ordinary sort of due diligence that families would do when they're looking at that, but there's no hard stop for them structuring internationally, um, subject to, of course, specific yeah. cases where there is a yeah. licensing issue, right? Yeah. All right. Now, the, uh, the final bit on the domestic side is looking at domestic family offices. And, and here it's really where are we in terms of the demand for family offices within the, each of the markets? And which is the most prevalent family office? And I'll explain what I mean by the different types that I've listed. So multifamily offices is effectively a professional firm that manages families' monies, multiple clients' monies, but it doesn't comprise a, a group of families together. You can, of course, have those, but in the context I'm using it, we're really looking at external asset managers professionally running um, sort of uh, multiple families as clients. Investment offices are really looking for this purpose is looking at in, an individual entrepreneur or an individual who, who's managing the investments in a professionalized way, his own investments, but there's no collective family wealth involved. It's just one particular family member that's doing that for their own account. And then the single family office is really where we have family money from different branches um, being consolidated and used uh, and, and uh, and, and managed 
in a under the umbrella of a full-fledged single-family office. So from a domestic standpoint, Chinapan, do, do we have much interest in Bangkok, uh, in the business families, in establishing family offices? Um, do, do we have multifamily offices proliferating in Bangkok? How does this look from your perspective? Uh, not, not only in Bangkok, not in Thailand. The, okay. the, concept, the concept or knowledge about the family office yeah. so will really low in, in Thailand and right. uh, but, uh, but But last two years, uh, the Thai Commercial Bank, SCB, uh, SCB uh, joined with the uh, Jewish Bank from Switzerland. Set up, set up a new business, uh, uh, estate planning and family office division. Uh, but this is not the first time because uh, in, in the past, uh, some fam, uh, family business, they, they, they try to create something uh, as a result of the family charter. To, to, to proceed with the family rule, to proceed with the uh, family welfare, family asset management, family welfare investment, family meeting, and then family paper for, uh, for example, uh, minutes of the meeting of the family members. Right. And, and then the family office will be the center of the family business, uh, separate, separate from the corporate office. Yes. Yeah. Office is easier for, for the business perspective, but for the family member uh, can, uh, can, can, can enjoy and uh, utilize the family office. Right. Uh, to 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 be the center of communication is the big issue. Communication. Right. So that's fairly exceptional for a family to to involve a a integrated system like that involving yeah. a family office. The, the general feel is that is it because you know the, the Thai families are obviously um, quite advanced in terms of their seniority and age, but it seems interesting that they wouldn't have already started to develop a domestic family office market. Is it really just the case that? There's a lack of knowledge as to what's the usefulness of the family office. Is that the case, or is it there's not enough professionals doing it? Or why why is that happening? This is this is a big issue, Zach. Uh, the knowledge and uh, education in terms of of the family business, uh, we, we 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 have not much the uh, course or program of the family business in Thailand in the university, just right. just the short course, and then that's why the the family office knowledge just limit right and, and the leading the leading uh, uh, players in the market is the bank. The right. bank not only in thailand but from singapore from hong kong we sit the the family business client in uh, thailand. right every month every month there and and then uh, the, the the banks from singapore and uh, uh, hong kong they try to push the knowledge only the investment the family office in the meaning of investment but at the real practice, no. Right. That. right. Okay. And Kim, from your side, are these these things popular with the families, or is it is it the same case that there is a lack of knowledge on why would you find this useful as a business family? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways it's quite similar to Thailand. Right. Uh, there is a lack of knowledge. So, in the same way that you had mentioned earlier, that you know, family charters. Uh, you know, it is an invention of the business schools. Yeah. So when the younger members come back, so similarly, family offices, you know, would have been uh, something that came about through the same route. Right. So it's the younger members who then, you know, talk about, hey, you know, we're big enough. Maybe we should have a family office where everything is centralized. Right. And you know, more than just investments, they deal with everything to do with the family. You right. know, 
um, and handle everybody's uh, you know travel you know, to to the family meetings and things like that. Yes. So it's it's still a, a new concept, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I think it's also very similar to Thailand. The banks are the on the on the forefront of pushing this. Um, especially Malaysia in the, in the case of Malaysia, it will be you know banks from Singapore. Yes. Right. And I, I think it helps that uh, you know Singapore has a, a very uh, tax incentivized regime for yes. family offices. So so that helps um, them in, in pushing it pushing the whole concept uh, to Malaysian family businesses. Right. right. Okay. Well, I think that's a that's a good good point to um, to actually move on to looking at the international family office and particularly the Singapore single family office and. Uh, at this point, I just invite uh, Spencer to just have him make a few remarks on the Singapore Single Family Office for, for members who are watching, who are unaware of the advantages and the, the growth of this particular offering in Singapore and why it's um, it's being adopted so widely. So, uh, Spencer, I just invite you to to, to make uh, your usual remarks on the uh, the Single Family Office. Thanks so much, Zach, uh, and then thanks also uh, you know to Kim and and Chinapat for your sharing. I think it's in it's been very useful uh, getting a better understanding of how the landscape is like in terms of uh, family businesses, uh, as well as the view on uh, um, uh, family offices within your different locations. And uh, I think Singapore has, uh, I mean, we have seen very strong growth in the number of family offices being uh, set up uh, in Singapore in the past few years. Um, uh, in particular, many of these uh, families uh, come from the region, including Malaysia uh, and Thailand, and uh, probably more Malaysian uh, than Thailand, possibly because of the uh, geographical proximity and uh, also because of the, the nature of their business. Um, so um, some of the reasons that uh, they have uh, chosen uh, to set up a family office in Singapore, uh, I think essentially it depends on, on how the family's business is being organized at this point in time. If they have um, uh, assets which are distributed um, uh, across uh, different parts of the world, uh, they see the family office as a useful uh, entity to consolidate the management uh, of these assets. Uh, at, at times also, it's because of um, the family members and their uh, changing uh, demands of the lifestyle, uh, they may decide that they want to uh, move to a, a different location. Uh, and the family office uh, actually offers a, a good uh, opportunity or means by which they can uh, move overseas. For example, you know, when they set up a family office in Singapore, uh, they can uh, elect to uh, employ themselves under the family office or certain family members who are looking to live in uh, Singapore. Uh, uh, and that you know, provides a means for them to apply for an employment pass uh, to work in Singapore, managing the family office while living uh, here at the same time. Uh, and I think uh, amongst the various factors that uh, they have seen uh, uh, attractive in setting up family office in Singapore would be uh, the political and economic stability, uh, because uh, ultimately what they're looking to do is to protect the wealth that they have accumulated, uh, accumulated over the years. Uh, and, and Singapore provides that independent uh, jurisdiction and uh, sound environment to, to, to help with that. At the same time, being able to access uh, global opportunities, be it uh, from the primary markets or uh, even in, be, sorry, in, the, in the secondary markets, being able to access 
uh, financial products from uh, around the world and also uh, being able to access uh, private investment opportunities such as uh, private equity uh, and venture capital. Uh, they also uh, find that very attractive because I think amongst a lot of family offices, apart from the traditional uh, financial investments, they're looking at certain investments which could um, give potential for growth in the portfolio and possibly uh, for some families to uh, give them a second lease of life, you know, having uh, started their own uh, family business, being very successful in it, they want to go through the same experience again, but more in an advisory role with new companies. So that, that uh, represents a certain attraction for them as well. But I think also um, uh, a main reason that many of these uh, international families decide to set up in Singapore is because of uh, the tax uh, arrangements that they can benefit from. Uh, for example, the uh, 13X and 13R schemes uh, that we are running uh, in, in Singapore, which actually allows for um, any investments which are being made by family offices, being managed by family offices, uh, to be uh, exempt uh, from any uh, uh, taxes on, on the gains from these investments. Uh, and this arrangement is, uh, is, is an arrangement that is a long-term arrangement. Uh, the tax exemption is available for as long as uh, these assets are being managed out of Singapore. So it provides uh, transparency uh, and certainty uh, to these families when it comes to uh, their tax exposure. And, and that has been uh, very attractive, uh, especially for wealth preservation from an intergenerational transfer. If you want your next generation to continue to, um, you know, to, 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 to um, you know, benefit from the assets, uh, they're able to establish um, a, a family office and avail themselves of the tax exemptions in order to do so. Um, I think there was also mentioned uh, early on about uh, trust structures. Uh, we also have quite a well-developed trust legislation available and that, that also helps uh, uh, for those families which are looking to uh, move their assets within the trust structure to benefit uh, multiple generations uh, going forward. So I think uh, uh, these are some of uh, very um, uh, attractive um, qualities which have made uh, Singapore attractive to family offices. And I think it's an area that we could you know, continue to uh, work together uh, to support uh, any of uh, the families from, from your locations which are looking to uh, explore uh, opportunities uh, overseas to consider um, you know, having their presence in Singapore, given you know, the geographical proximity between Singapore and, and, and your uh, various locations. I think that, that makes it very attractive for them, especially if they continue to you know, be involved in the operating business uh, back in Malaysia and Thailand. If, uh, Jennifer, from your side in, in um, uh, Thailand, if a Thai family wishes to establish a single family office in Singapore, are there significant capital controls in terms of the funding of that particular family office? Is there those concerns? Can they, can they easily um, uh, transfer enough funds out of Thailand to, to make it a viable platform? Uh, in the past, yes, sad. But uh, late last year, the Bank of Thailand relaxed relax the uh, the uh, requirement in terms of the fund transfer uh, outside from Thailand to offshore. And then uh, the Bank of, of Thailand, uh, the BOT, adopt the new rule. They, they adopt the uh, negative list. Negative list means uh, all 
uh, transaction you can transfer the fund out of Thailand, but only around eight lists uh, not allowed, but need to be approved uh, from the Bank of Thailand first. Right. And from now on, uh, the freedom of the fund transfer from Thailand to, to offshore to set up the fa family office in Singapore is okay, easy. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I have a question to Spencer. Because, uh, because not only the family business set up the family office uh, single in Singapore, but if I ask the uh, service provider set up the family office for, for providing the service, in Singapore and work with the banks in Singapore, work with the trust advisor in Singapore to take care the family office, uh, family business in Thailand is okay. Uh, yeah, I think uh, essentially, uh, if you're looking at using a, a, a family office uh, structure in Singapore to uh, continue to manage the business in Thailand, yep. um, I think that is an arrangement uh, that could be uh, implemented as well if that is the uh, decision by the family to also uh, hold uh, the operating business uh, under the family office structure. Yeah, so I think there are some some examples. Although I think from a structuring perspective, uh, we need to work with the lawyers to see what kind of uh, a structure makes sense uh, for these families. Yeah, uh, you you mean the a single family office that allowed by the MAS in Singapore? Uh, can can be the service provider like myself set up my family office service uh -huh. right okay thank you yeah so oh, sorry so you're talking about as a professional uh, service yes, provider yes, to establish yes. a presence in singapore to uh, work with um uh, clients back in, in in thailand yes i think that that is uh something that is uh, possible uh, but if let's say for example you are um, looking to uh, provide uh, legal advice uh, in yes, Singapore, yes. then yes. there are uh, relevant registration requirements that okay. uh, we need to undergo. If let's say um, the intention is, is not to uh, provide the legal aspect of the advice, you can work with uh, a local partner, for example, you could, you know, partner with Zach and, and he could, you know, provide the, the legal aspect of things, whereas from your perspective, you're you're dealing with the Thai side of things and, and uh, uh, engagement with the, the family members. That's oh, that's great. That's great. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Just coming back to that point around the, uh, the transfer of funds out of Thailand, yeah. is there a limit to the amount that can be sent out in any one year? Uh, oh, yes, yes. Uh, they, 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 they have the, uh, the, the, the list of the uh, uh, fund transfer, for example. You, you will remit the fund to purchase the uh, asset out of Thailand. If you are the qualified investor in Thailand, qualified investor means you have the uh, at least 50 million baht, 50 million baht, around two, 2 million Singapore dollar. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, and then you, you, can, you can do the fund transfer for a specific purpose. And then you can do that freely. Right. And there's no limit to the actual capital amount that you can send out. That's right. That's right. Okay. Kim, from your side, transferring funds from Malaysia to Singapore for the purpose of establishing a family office, are there any considerations in doing that? I think for investments, uh, you know, to, to carry out investment, up to a very large amount is allowed, but it also depends on the circumstances of the person transmitting the funds, whether they have 
um, borrowings as well in Malaysia. Uh -huh. That sets that, uh, the first level of the limit. If you don't, the limit is higher. If you do, then there is a limit, then you just need to get a, a approval or to fill in a, a form before you exceed that limit. So it, it, it shouldn't be you know, that difficult to transfer funds to, to right. Singapore to set up a, a, a family office. Okay, and, and more generally, when we look at the, um, the, the obviously we're, we're still going through the, the COVID crisis, um, looking at post-COVID tax administration response to this, do we expect any tightening up of the tax rules or introduction of new forms of taxes that could impact the ability to send funds abroad, to, um, to enjoy the, the, the growth of capital abroad without taxation, uh, do we see any mutterings at the moment from the tax authorities that there will likely be so a little bit more aggression in terms of the, the provisions that are likely to come in as part of the recovery package? Are you seeing anything from that in, in, uh, in Malaysia, for instance? I think the mutterings have, more, have not been so much to do with um, prohibiting money being sent out for, you know, for investments and things like that. The mutterings have more been to do with whether they sh should start uh, introducing uh, a wealth tax, yes. for example, in Malaysia, or inheritance, bring back, you know, estate duty, yes. which has been out for many, many years. Yeah. And also whether there should be a capital gains tax, because Malaysia doesn't have capital gains tax at the moment, right. except for gains in real property. Mm. So, you know, I think every government in the world will, will be having these sort of conversations because yes. of all the, um, you know, um, solutions they've, they've had to come up with to assist their, their people in, this, in the time of this pandemic. So um, it, they have to balance the books eventually and, and they will have to right. uh, raise uh, income to pay for, you know, all the benefits that they've been uh, doling out. Right, right. And Chinapat, from your side, from yep. the, the Thai government, have they been saying anything about or the introduction of, let's say, a greater rate? You already have inheritance taxes, but uh, bringing in greater rates of, you know, uh, percentage of, of taxation on uh, wealth that's sent across generations, particularly when it involves things like a family business. Have you heard anything of, around the post-COVID recovery sort of tax approach? Uh, in terms of the uh, uh, COVID recovery for tax perspective, the, uh, the government, they, they try to uh, delay the tax pay payment yeah. and the tax filing yes. and uh, reduce the rate for withholding tax locally. Mm. And then, uh, in, in, in the long run, in the long run, the Thai government, they, they prepare to do the Thai tax reform. And then now uh, we, we have the uh, uh, gift tax, we have the inheritance tax, we have the, uh, the new property tax. Yes. And then uh, the uh, wet rate or GST in Malaysia and Singapore, uh, VAT in Thailand, now the current rate is 7%. seven percent. Yes. Uh, but but we, are, we are talking about uh, increase or not. Uh, uh, different from the income tax, the corporate, corporate income tax now, now 20% on the net profit. And after that, uh, for example, 100, 100 is a net profit. Uh, 20 is a corporate tax and then 80 will be dividend dividend tax is 10 percent 
Right, right. In then Thailand, we have the uh, effective tax rate for corporate tax twenty eight. Yeah, yeah. Different from personal tax. Personal tax are so high, thirty five, uh, in the past thirty seven. And uh, under the uh, Thai tax reform scheme, the corporate tax rate will be reduced from twenty to be sixteen point uh, sixteen sixty five six one six point six five. For corporate tax, and then the uh, uh, individual tax rate uh, from uh, thirty-five will be twenty-five, right. and then equal, right? Right. I mean, right. And then looking more broadly, obviously Thailand will be adopting the CRS the year yeah. next. Do you feel yeah. that that will usher in, or is there there an idea behind that ushering in a increase in the? Um, the, the sort of inheritance tax rates and maybe a, a more comprehensive approach to the high net worth community or the business family community in Thailand once the CRS uh, data starts moving? Do you think that that will likely be a case or how is this being viewed from the ground in Thailand? Uh, in terms of the CIS, uh, the Thai Ministry of Finance signed the MOU among the uh, uh, international communities uh, mm -hmm. in the last three years to, to join the CIS scheme and then uh, the draft law under the process by right. uh, uh, managed by the uh, Revenue Department. Mm -hmm. And uh, hopefully it will be come to effect in the next few years, uh, next few years, yes. And uh, uh, in terms of the uh, increase of the tax rate of income mm. tax, I, I don't believe so. Right. It's uh, just 5%, really low. <laughs> yes, yes, okay. All right, okay. We've got a couple of questions that have um, come up. One of them, I think, is, is aimed at you, um, Kim. What kind of, it's a chatty message, what kind of rights could be reserved by a client if um, to set up the Lab One Foundation? Is it still uh, asset protection that they're looking at? And things in, in the business family context, the, the sort of reservation of rights into one of these foundations, presumably it's all gonna be around how families uh, vote and control the underlying business, how they reach consensus on how to operate the foundation. Is that probably right? Yeah, and, and often, well, I, I, that is uh, quite right. And they can also reserve um, rights over investments. So, so they can, you know, um, have a say over what investments the, the foundation goes into, mm. um, which I think is probably an advantage over, say, trust, mm. where you, you don't, you, you can't reserve your rights so openly, as, as in the case of a foundation. Right. And in terms of the asset protection, um, that is still there because once property is um, endowed into a foundation, then the um, Laban Foundations Act provides that the property then becomes property of the foundation. Mm. It's no longer the property of the founder mm. who has endowed the foundation. So if it's no longer the property of the founder, then obviously, um, you know, creditors can't, um, you know, go against that, that property. Of course, we do have um, provisions for fraudulent dis disposition. I mean, you, you have to prove that um, the disposition into the foundation was done uh, fraudulently with the intent to defraud a creditor, yes, yes, which, yeah. is, which is quite a usual yeah. uh, provision. Okay, and then there's a follow-on. Um, is there capital controls in Malaysia in the sense of transferring funds out? Is there a capital control aspect to that? 
well, you know, we would say there is no capital controls in Malaysia. I mean, previously there, there, there were capital controls, but it's been really loosened to, to such a great extent that uh, now it's, it's, so it's at, at a very you know, high level before you need to um, you know, get the approval and, and um, oftentimes money can be sent out freely. Right, okay. I think just one final question for Jennifer. Jennifer, the, the, the Thai trust law, um, why is it taking so long to get this law in the books? What's going on? It's been, it's been in draft form for a long time. Uh, you see, I, I, I have reviewed the uh, draft yeah. uh, law of, of uh, the uh, private trust or family trust. And then uh, I, I used the draft law to, to do the uh, in-house training for the uh, asset management company in Thailand. Mm. And, and uh, some banks from Singapore. Right, right, right. <laughs> some, some banks from Singapore because, you know, uh, uh, in, in the Thai, Thailand perspective, the, uh, the life insurance, life insurance, uh, uh, we will be used for for the uh, PR and marketing device, marketing tools in terms of uh, inheritance tax protection. But you know, when when you uh, do the uh, life insurance in Singapore, uh, that's good that Spencer <laughs> joined this uh, this event uh, because uh, the bank, the bank, RM Bank uh, advised the client in Thailand that when you use the life insurance UL. Universal Life Insurance UL, uh, and uh, for example, premium premium three million baht, uh, three million US dollar. Uh, you can spend remit only one million and make a loan from the bank in uh, Singapore two million baht. This life insurance policy, it is understood that uh, no no need to specify the name of beneficiary. Is it correct, Spencer? I, I think it, it's, it's true, right? And then, uh, uh, and then if no beneficiary under the Thai law, the Supreme Court recently ruled that if the uh, life insurance policy lack of beneficiary, the uh, benefit proceeds from the insurance will go to the estate and then go to the successor. This is subject to inheritance tax in Thailand. I don't know if Spencer will not be out to that. <laughs> Very technical question. Yeah. I mean, uh, in so far as uh, you know, our, uh, our trust legislation does not require the disclosure of you know, um, the, 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 the identities of the beneficiaries, I think uh, conceptually, this would be an arrangement that um, that we would uh, allow for. I don't think there'd be any specific uh, so-called tax arrangements or you know attribution of of the um, proceeds to specific estates. Yeah, but um, I I, I can not comment in a very specific. <laughs> <way>. <laughs> yes, that's better, Zach. And and then uh, in addition to the life insurance. Yes. Uh, the family trust will be used uh, to support the uh, inheritance tax because uh, you know uh, in the other countries when you have the uh, inheritance tax or estate tax you will have the family trust law. Right and so from, you think that the Thai trust law will finally come in in 2022? Um, that's what it's about? Yes, yes maybe. Okay all right. Okay well look thank you very much um, uh, guys for, for, for running through this. Thanks very much, Kim.
to the fans. Obviously, Spencer, thank you very much for spending time. Yeah. And also to everyone that has, has joined and, and uh, sort of uh, spent time watching our, our, our webinar today. Um, tomorrow, we'll have the, the sort of finale of the entire series where we'll deal with the single family office. But, um, but for today, I think I'll, I'll, I'll close the session just with the same admonition that obviously the stuff that you've heard today is not and does not constitute legal advice. And that if you have any specific cases, you ought to uh, seek specific legal advice on that. So these are just the sincere views of practitioners on sort of hypothetical scenarios. All right. Well, thank you very much. You'll uh, circulate the slides as well as the recordings in the usual way.